Well, if you brought your Bible with you, you want to take that out right now. We're going to be in uh, Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at the first 11 verses today. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the tables around the room and in the back there. I think we're all out back there, but we'll get you a Bible if you need one. Uh, So what we're going to do today is we're going to continue in our series on the topic of sacrifice. Earlier this month, Pastor Mike introduced the series, and he was in Philippians 1 showing us what it takes to sacrifice, and that it takes courage. And then week two, Pastor Ben was in Philippians chapter 2, where he looked at the beauty of sacrifice. And of course, last weekend we didn't meet, so today, on the the last weekend of the month, we're going to wrap up this very short series on sacrifice, and we're going to look at today the motivation for sacrifice. Before we get into the text proper, uh, what I want to do is give us a good working definition of motivation, just something from the dictionary. What, What does motivation mean? And it is the reason or reasons one has for behaving in a particular way. In other words, why we do what we do. That's your motivation. And while I'm defining terms, I thought, well, let's look at sacrifice. Again, just a, a, just a general, broadly speaking definition of sacrifice is to suffer loss, give up, or surrender something for the sake of something else. So the question of the day, the question that we're looking at here today is us as Christians, why would we be willing to give up something for the sake of something else? And I think the answer is found in Philippians chapter 3. So let's read the Apostle Paul's words to the church in Philippi. If you would please stand in honor of God and his word. Again, Philippians chapter 3, we're going to read the first 11 verses. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, 
becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You may be seated. So Paul begins here with the word finally. If you've ever heard a, a preacher say, you know, now finally or in conclusion, and then go on for like 20 more minutes, that seems like what Paul is doing here. Because he still has two chapters to go, and 44 more verses follow the word finally. So he's not really wrapping up the letter at this point. Really what he's, he's doing is he's transitioning. This is more of a transition than a conclusion. He's saying, furthermore, or so then. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. What Paul's saying here is what I'm about to share, we've gone over this before. I've told you, this this is coming to you by way of reminder because it's so important. And I think especially when it comes to things that are important, we need to hear them over and over and over again. So you don't tell your teenage driver to be careful on the road only once and never repeat yourself. No, every time they leave the house, hey, be careful, drive safely, take your time, watch out for those crazy drivers out there. Don't be one of those crazy drivers out there. Right? And you say it every time they leave the house. Why? Because it's so important. And likewise, in verse 2, Paul tells the Philippians here that they need to watch out. He's given a warning. He says, look out three times. Look out, or as some translations say, beware of the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What in the world are you talking about, Paul? This is quite a transition from rejoice in the Lord, watch out for them mutilators of the flesh. Like, what is he getting at? Well, he's not talking about three groups of people, but rather one group, and they have a name. They go by the Judaizers. Here's the scene. The situation is this, that Paul would come into a town, and he would plant a church there, just like he did in Philippi. And as that church began to grow and and flourish, these Judaizers would creep in with their false doctrine. They were Jews who would say, yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also must do some other things. You must follow the law of Moses and be circumcised, for example. And what they're in effect saying is Jesus isn't sufficient enough to deal with your sin problem. You must do something. You must add to his finished work. And this is heresy. Think of this as the Jesus plus heresy. We can read more about it in Acts chapter 15. It says there, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. I mean, it doesn't get any clearer than that. And that, my friends, is false teaching. Now, I don't want to go into a long discussion here about circumcision and what that is. I think most of us here know what it is. I will tell you this, uh, to be circumcised, uh, the word means to cut around, and it pertains to the foreskin of the male genitalia. That's all you're getting from me, okay? You want to know more? 
You know where Google.com is at, okay? You're going to do your own research. But here's what's important. Here's what you need to know. Circumcision was a good thing. This was instituted by God. He's the one who came up with it. This was a sign of the covenant between God and his people, the Jews. It said, that group of people that are circumcised, that's my people, God says. They, they belong to God. But it was never meant to be a practice to be followed by all people at all times. No, it was a pointer. It was pointing to something greater. See, insisting on, on circumcision would be like taking your family into your car and heading down 322 East on your way into Hershey. And you see the sign that says, Hershey Park, one mile. And you pull off to the side of the road and say, come on, fam, get out of the car, we're here. And you all stand there by the sign taking photos and selfies and posting them to Facebook saying, our day at Hershey Park. No, that's a sign. It's a pointer to something greater, the actual park. That's the same reason you didn't bring an animal with you here today to, to bring up front here and slaughter on the altar. Why? It's because we have Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. If you did that, that wouldn't be a good thing. That would be a bad thing. We would stop you from doing that, even though this is the perfect time to do it. We don't even have carpet up here. Just <laughs> let the blood spill. We would say, no, no, what you're doing is you're saying that Jesus isn't good enough. He's not sufficient, and he is. See, all those things in the Old Testament, they're signposts pointing ahead, and they all point to Christ. And that's why we need to be in our Old Testament. We need to be reading it, looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. And we ought not unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. Jesus didn't do that. What did he say? I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, I came to what? Fulfill them. And he did. And so this is an important enough point for Paul here to use some very strong language. I mean, he comes out guns blazing. He's engaging here in actual name-calling. Dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, them fighting words. I mean, this is very offensive language. This would have burned the ears of the Judaizers. Now, when he says dogs, we, we need to get the idea out of our mind of Fluffy and Snowball and Lassie, okay? Dogs back then, they were scavengers. They, they were these rabid, filthy, dirty dogs that roamed the streets feeding on garbage, and, and they carried diseases with them, and they would attack and bite people. And Paul's saying, watch out for them. And he kind of flips the script here and, and, and turns the tables on these Jews by calling them dogs because that's what they would refer to Gentiles as. But Paul begins this contrast in verse 3. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see the distinction that he's making here? He's making a distinction between the outward flesh and the inward spirit. And I think it's helpful at this point to, de to define for us flesh. What, what is that? And I like John Calvin's definition. It's very simple. He says flesh is anything outside of Christ. 
And Paul's saying, these Judaizers, they represent the outward. This thing that you got to do, you got to get circumcised so that you can be saved. And Paul contrasts that with the inward circumcision of the heart for those who worship by the Spirit and put no confidence in the flesh. Do you see the contrast that he is establishing here? Romans 2 really illuminates this for us. Paul says there, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision, here it is, is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What we need to grasp is that God is not so much interested in the outward appearance. He's not. I mean, we all look good right now. I, I, I look really good. I do. I'm wearing a shirt with a collar on it. I'm standing up here. I got a, I got a Bible in my hand. You know, I, I look pretty good. And so do you. You're here. You got your Sunday best on, right? You, you're holding a Bible in your lap. You look really spiritual, you know? But God, he sees through all of that stuff. He knows me intimately, and he knows I'm not that pure. I don't always look this good. And because he's looking internally, he's looking at my heart. That is what God is after. He's after the heart. So it's not about our works or our quote unquote good behavior, you know, moral behavior, religious activity. Those are all external things. And what Paul is saying is it is about knowing Jesus. And he gets to that in verse 8. But I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because he says in verse 4 something very important. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. This is great. What is about to happen here? You are about to witness some religious trash talking. That's what Paul is going to do here. He, he steps out under the court of religion and says, yo, I got next, and starts running smack. He's like, you think, you know, you got something to boast in? You want to play that game of putting confidence in the flesh? Don't come at me, because you're going to take the L on this one, buddy. Trust me. You don't know who you're talking to. And he proceeds to present his credentials. He throws his resume down on the table, and he lists all these things, which fall into one of two categories either things that belong to him by his ancestry or his heritage, and the things that he has done or achieved in his life. This is what he says. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul's like, how do you like them apples, right? You want to boast in the flesh? I'm the one who can boast. I'm a Jew since birth. I got circumcised on the eighth day, not day seven, not day nine, day eight, just as it said in the law. I'm, a, I'm an Israelite. I, I'm a Jew. I'm part of, of Israel, God's chosen people. I'm not some Johnny come lately to this thing. I've been in the game since I came out the womb. Of the tribe of Benjamin, he's saying, hey, you know, why would he even bring Benjamin into this? Well, that was a very respected tribe. 
He's saying, you remember Israel's first king? What was his name? King Saul? Yeah, he was a Benjamite like me. And where do you think I got my former name from? Saul. See, I got royalty in my blood. That's what he's saying. He's like, I'm a, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I don't follow. I lead. I'm part of an elite group known as the Pharisees. You might have heard of us. You want zeal? How's this for zeal? I used to drag Christians through the street, throw them in prison. And when Stephen was being stoned to death, I was the coat check guy. I was there. I was giving my approval to that. But what about moral behavior? Oh, yeah, you already know. Blameless. I mean, this is religious trash talking at its best. Paul's just crushing it here. He's like, listen, you're not on my level, okay? Don't even try it. And he plays the ultimate, don't you know who I am card? I'm the freaking apostle Paul. All right, that might have been a little too much. Let me, <laughs> let me dial it back a little bit here. Sorry for that, if that was offensive to you. But after he lists all these credentials, it's as if he stops. And it's as if he grabs like a red Sharpie. And in big, bold, red letters, he writes over his resume, L-O-S-S, loss. I count it all as loss. Compared to what? compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So my question to you is, does this resonate with you at all? Because it does for me in a major way. Far be it from me to lump myself in with the Apostle Paul. I think that's a pretty bold thing to do. But I too used to put confidence in the flesh. I did. I was born into a Roman Catholic family. I was baptized as a baby, first communion in second grade, confirmed in ninth grade. I was married in the Catholic Church. I baptized my firstborn. I've been to all the religious education classes. I had my knuckles whacked with a ruler. I wore the white robe. I prayed the rosary. I've made the sign of the cross thousands of times. I've confessed my sins to a man in a box. I said the Hail Marys. I've had ashes smeared on my forehead. And I was the dude ordering the filet of fish on Friday when everybody else was getting the Big Mac. <laughs> I've had jewelry blessed. I've been splashed with holy water. And I've attended countless masses. So I am no stranger to stained glass windows. That is my resume. All of that is true. And if this is how you get right with God, oh, I was right with God. But I can tell you, as I stand here right now, I was not right with God because I had not met him yet. I count all of that as loss today. See, this whole passage can be summed up like this. Our righteousness, it comes not from us, exclusively from God through Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. And any attempt by us, no matter what that might look like, to add to that by our own works or achievement is an offense to God. It's not just extra. You're just putting a little, you're just adding some whipped cream on the No, no. It's actually taking away from the gospel. It's a denial of the gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. The late D. James Kennedy he was a, the leader of a, a ministry called Evangelism Explosion. And he would ask this question of people. 
He would say, suppose you were to die today and you were to stand before God and he was to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? I'd like to ask you that question. You stood before the Lord and he says, why should I let you in? What would you say to him? I'll give you a second to to ponder that. It's an important question. And the reason I think it's that it's brilliant question, it gets right down to the nitty-gritty of what people are trusting in. Where is their hope? It exposes exactly where their confidence is. Because if your answer appeals to any one of those things that I just listed, or some Protestant version of those, I'm afraid you have been influenced by the Judaizers of our day. And like Paul, I would solemnly warn you Do not put confidence in the flesh. So really, what is the answer to that question? Well, I'll tell you how how I would answer it. If God was to ask me, Mike, why should I let you into my heaven? My answer would go something like this. Because I know Jesus, and Jesus knows me. And even then, there's a little more there than I need, really. It really could be one name, Jesus Christ. That's my response. I'm not going to appeal to myself, anything that I've done or not done. It's all about him. And that's exactly where Paul's going here, beginning in verse 7. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything, don't miss that, everything as loss because, here it is. Why, Paul, do you count everything as loss? Because I know Christ Jesus, my Lord. There's, pers- there's a personal uh, tone to this. He's my Lord. I know him. He's not some religious figure. He's my Lord. And for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or garbage. In the King James, it's dung. He says, that's what it is. In order that I may gain Christ, I give all that up. I count that as trash. So that I may gain Christ. It is about knowing Jesus. What did Jesus pray to the Father? In in John 17, he said, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We must know God. Not know about God. Not not be able to rattle off doctrine and and facts about God and and, run the category on Jeopardy when it's titled the Bible. And that might impress Alex Trebek, but God is not impressed with that. Apart from saving knowledge of who he is, that intimate relationship that he desires. See, Paul at one point in his life, he valued certain things like heritage and and his ancestry and the things that he did for God, his religious activity, his right law keeping. And he thought that was the way he gets right with God. And now he comes along and says, I count all of that as a big, fat, steaming pile of excrement compared to Christ. So Paul, what happened? I mean, What happened to this guy? Something radical must have happened to completely shatter his value system. Something did. He met Jesus. On the road to Damascus, you know the story. He's on his horse, gets knocked off his high horse. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
he ran into the God of the universe, Lord Jesus Christ, face to face, right there. And Paul's life was never the same after that. And he says in our text that he goes on to say that, that his desire is to be found in him. That's Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There is so much in there. This text is so rich. There is no way that I can do it justice in the remaining time that we have here. I mean, there's concepts in there. You got justification, you got sanctification, you got glorification, you got concepts like the power of his resurrection, attaining the resurrection from the dead. Too much to deal with. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to zero in on that clause found in the middle of verse 10, that we may share his sufferings. We're talking about sacrifice. If you think about sacrifice, think about Jesus' sacrifice. Well, there was a lot of suffering that was part of his sacrifice, a huge part of it. And I don't know that you can really have a conversation about sacrifice without bringing in suffering. The two are just right there linked together. And I don't think we do well with suffering. I know I don't. I'm more of a comfort and pleasure kind of guy. I mean, you give me a choice. I don't know. What do I want? No, I want the comfort and pleasure over the sacrifice and suffering. And I don't think I'm alone. Uh, let me take you back to uh, last weekend here. We, uh, we got that snow, if you remember, on, on Saturday. And it, it came down in the afternoon. And, you know, and, the, and the joke goes like this. Like before that, that first snowflake hits the ground, people run out to the grocery store and buy out all the milk and bread, right? Have you heard this? right? You know, I, I'm from upstate New York. I've made this joke. I'm kind of a weather snob. Like, you know, what we had last weekend doesn't even appear on the radar in Syracuse, okay? But, you know, I thought, about, I'm like, you know, what are, this is the joke. It's like, what are people thinking? Like, I'm going to be trapped in my home because there's three inches of snow on the ground, you know? My family and I, we're forced to become cannibals and eat one another because we ain't got any bread or milk in the house, and that's kind of how it goes, right? But as I thought about it, I was like, you know, that's not really what I think is going on. I don't think that's what people are worried about. I think something else is happening. And it's this. It's that we are so used to comfort and ease and having everything right at our fingertips. The fear is not that we're going to starve to death. The fear is we're going to crave a bowl of cereal on Saturday night. We're going to pour it into the bowl make our way to the fridge, open the door, and oh no, we don't have any milk. Oh, the humanity. I mean, that's what I think is going through people's minds. I knew we should have gone to Giant before the snowstorm. And if we're really honest, for many of us, we have enough food in our cabinets to last us clear into June, okay, if we did have the snowstorm of a lifetime. So what am I saying here? You know what I'm saying? And you may not like this. I'm saying, generally speaking, we as a society, we're soft. I think we're pretty soft. 
And I say we because I'm including myself. You know, I'll go to the freezer, I'll get something out of the freezer, and I'll read the instructions, you know, uh, cook for 15 minutes and let it cool for two minutes. I'll put it back. Like, I'm hungry now, all right? Not 17 minutes from now. And that, that doesn't even count the time it takes to preheat the oven. I'm thinking, we're into 20 minutes plus here at this point. Instead, I'll grab a jar of peanuts and start shoveling them in my mouth. Instant gratification, right? And not the peanuts you got to crack open from the shell. I, I don't have time for all that cracking shells and, you know, doing all that. I need that done at the factory by the time it makes its way to my house, right? And, you know, and uh, I don't know if this resonates at all with you guys, but uh, you know, have you ever gone to like a buffet and, and you're looking at, at the shrimp and you're considering the shrimp? You're like, hmm, you know, shrimp is kind of a delicacy, you know, fancy food. You know, we don't eat shrimp every day in my house. And you look at it and you're like, yeah, I could go for some shrimp. And then you realize that it's the peel and eat variety and you keep on moving. Like, I have time to be doing all that, making a mess with all those prongy things. And like, y'all need to be doing that in the back. I mean, how much am I paying for this buffet anyway, you know? Peel and eat shrimp. No, you do the peeling, I'll do the eating. That will be our relationship. But this is how conditioned I am to comfort and pleasure. I am. I'm admitting it. So if it takes work and effort and sacrifice or suffering, I struggle. I won't even do it for something I like, like shrimp. Pathetic. But I submit to you that, that sadly, this does invade into our spiritual lives. People say, you know, I, I want to... I want to grow in my relationship with the Lord. Okay, are you willing to sacrifice the time and mental energy that it takes to labor in prayer? You know, I want to know more theology. I want to know my Bible better. Okay, are you willing to sacrifice binge watching that show on Netflix that you like so much so that you can be in the Word? People say, you know, I want the church to be that pure and spotless bride. Great. Are you willing to invest a part of your life to pour into someone else? People say, I want, I want community. I want to be connected with others. Are you willing to sacrifice an evening and perhaps face your social anxiety of being part of a community group? We say, we want our family and friends to be saved. We don't want them to go to hell. Okay, are you willing to risk your pride and, 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 and sacrifice that and risk ridicule, perhaps even the relationship itself, by witnessing to them? See, sacrifice always comes at a cost. There's no getting around it. It's, it's by definition. Remember, sacrifice is giving up something for the sake of something else. But notice what sacrifice doesn't mean. Sacrifice doesn't mean we give up something for nothing. There's, there's something on the other end there. And true sacrifice for the Christian means giving up something to gain something worth so much more. And Paul wants us to understand that in Christ, we found something for which we should be willing to sacrifice everything. Paul saw it utterly inconsistent to live a life of luxury and ease and pleasure, just living on easy street. 
He saw that as an inconsistency. Why? Because he claims Christ. He says, I follow a guy who was beaten and scourged and mocked and spat upon and ultimately strung up on a cross and crucified. I, I expect to live on easy street? That was an inconsistency that Paul could not live with. And he wants us to grasp this. So as, as we begin to, to conclude here, I want to end with this exercise. Try this with me. In your mind, create a ledger. Draw a vertical line with two columns on either side. And on one side, put all those things that you value, those things that are important to you. For many of us, it'll be similar things, right? Your family, your friends, your job, your success, your possessions, your house, your car, your money, your time, your comfort, the things that bring you pleasure and enjoyment. That's one side of the ledger. And on the other side, one name, Jesus. And if I said to you that Jesus is greater than all of those combined, would you agree with that? It's a probing question. Would you agree? See, until we embrace that truth, that Jesus is better than anything else this world has to offer, we won't be a sacrificial person, at least not in the way that God desires. Why? Because we will see all those other things as greater. And God's word is probing our hearts today. What do you value? What's most important to you? Because I would submit to you, the thing that you value the most, that is your God. This is a worship issue. We sacrifice to our God. I'm asking you today, who or what is your God? Because whoever that is or whatever that is, we give our worship to it. We sacrifice for it. If your God is money, you'll hold on to it at all costs. You'll be thinking about it, talking about it, pursuing it, scheming to get it, and you won't be a generous person. Instead, you'll be stingy. If your God is sports, you'll arrange your life around kickoffs and, and tip-offs and tea times. And you'll gather with other believers in big arenas and stadiums for worship services. If your God is sex, you'll give yourself to it at all costs. If your God is your time, you'll make decisions accordingly. If your God is self, you won't serve others. See, this is a worship issue. Who or what is your God? Because you will sacrifice to it. And the true God says, you can't serve me and another. He says, I won't allow it. You, Jesus is not going to share occupancy in your heart. It's Jesus alone on the throne. He won't compete with those other things. You know why? Because he does not compare to those other things. And Paul wants us to see Jesus as gain, everything else as loss. And, and make no mistake, this is not easy. It's not. I, I've confessed how hard it is for me. This, this text and, and some of the supporting texts that I was reading this past week just wrecked me. Some days I just was like, wow, I fall so short. I do. I look at the life of Paul. And what did he say? Follow me as I follow Christ? Like, Paul didn't measure up to Christ. I'm not measuring up to Paul, not even by a long shot. 
you know? And, and yes, I, we've already covered, I know my right standing before God is not dependent upon my ability to sacrifice. It's not. It's not as though I have a bad day where I'm really, really selfish and I think I'm going to go to hell if I was to die that day. That's not my concern. My concern is to live a life of sacrifice because that's what God has done for me. He sacrificed for me. Why do I think I get to, to, to receive all the benefits of this life and just serve self day after day? What gives me the right? I'm telling you, it's challenging. It's not easy. It wasn't easy for Jesus in the garden at Gethsemane. It's not easy for Paul as he writes this from a prison cell. But I think I would be remiss if I did not uh, temper everything that I'm saying here with the fact, and I do think it's a fact, that there is joy in suffering. You don't believe me? Read Acts chapter 16. The same apostle Paul and his buddy Silas, they're beaten, flogged, they're thrown in prison, shackled, hands and feet. And right around midnight, you know what you can find them doing? Singing hymns to God. Joyfully, I might add. See, this can be done. It can. But it starts with seeing Jesus as preeminent. Him as the all in all. Him as our treasure. And we need God's help. We can't do it on our own. We shouldn't try to do it on our own. Because then what? We have something to boast in. God, help me. Help me. You've given me a new heart. Let me operate out of that new heart that lives a life of sacrifice to you and to others. That needs to be our prayer. Say, God, please help me release my grip on those things that I deem so important, that, I, that are hugely valuable to me in my life. Help me to release my grip on them because they aren't my God. You are. That should be our prayer. I think that's a good segue to get us to the Lord's Supper. We're going to separate, uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper here this morning. And what I want to say in preparation for that is that Jesus Christ, the God-man, at one point in heaven got up from his throne where he is worshipped as God, angels singing his praises day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He gets up from his throne where he has all that heaven has to offer and he comes to this place. And you might think, well, this is the Lord of Lords, right? This is the King of Kings. He's going to come. He's going to be born in a palace with uh, maids and butlers and servants. He's God. That's not how he did it. He came to be born in this dirty old manger and lived a life of sacrifice. And I'm sure he was tempted to live on easy street with comfort and ease. But the Bible tells us for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And he surrendered his life so that we could live. So if you're here today and you have repented of your sins and you're looking to Christ, not your own goodness, you're looking to him for your salvation, that's where your hope is found, that's where your confidence is, then this is a, a meal for you. If you're here today, you just kind of stumbled into this place, you decided, hey, let's go to church on Sunday morning, I want to kind of investigate, see who, who this Jesus is, I don't know much, I'm not a Christian, 
And if you're here today, uh, we will serve you in your seats. Just let those elements pass on by. Instead, what I would encourage you to do is to think about your sin. Think about those things that you've done that you know are wrong. God's given you a conscience so that you would know. The things that you've done that are wrong and all the things that you should have done that you failed to do. And see that as an offense to a holy God who gave you physical life. And ask him to give you spiritual life. And, and see him dying for those things. Bloody and beaten on a cross. Sacrificially as the perfect sacrifice. And let that break your heart. Really. Use this time for that. And see how we, we love Jesus here. We do. It's all about Jesus. It is. We're not perfect. You know, we're not. We're far from it. That's why we love Jesus so much, because he's the perfect one. And I pray that you would know him and see him uh, for all he's worth. It's this, we're talking about the value of Christ, his excellency, his sufficiency.